the criminal legal system has left us with too little justice and too much mass incarceration, racial disparity, and lifelong burdens on those it touches. But few groups suffer as much under the system's burdens as young black people. How America criminalizes black youth, that's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal justice system uber nerd and guide to all things in the criminal legal system and still proudly clinging mightily to that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. On Criminal Injustice, we've had the opportunity to explore the full effect of what the criminal legal system does to our fellow citizens, from the war on drugs to cash bail systems, from mass incarceration to e-carceration, from disproportionate impacts on communities of color to the difficulties of re-entering society after prison. We've been able to take a close look at the direct impacts and the collateral damage that comes with our tendency to use the criminal legal system to address not just crime, but so many other social problems. But one thing we haven't touched on as much as I wish has been the impact of the system on young people. Our terrific conversation in episode 69 with Marsha Levick, chief counsel of the Juvenile Law Center, explored the devastating use of life without parole sentences in juvenile cases, something at which Pennsylvania is number one, sad to say. That whole idea seems crazy. The whole idea behind juvenile court is that we know kids aren't just small or younger adults. They change. Their brains are not yet fully developed, and yet we send them to prison forever. What is more crazy than that? One thing we must not ignore within the world of juvenile justice is its particular impact on juveniles who are black. Listen here to Alyssa Rochelle Blair. She's Deputy Public Defender for Los Angeles County, and she's speaking here at a meeting of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. If you saw the video of this, you'd see her referring to a chart, but it's really not necessary to get the point. She's showing that crime has gone down in her jurisdiction for years, and with it, incarceration of all juveniles. But despite that, racial disparity remains the same. So when you look at this chart and you see it kind of consistently going down, you still see black or African-American minors being detained at a much higher rate than white minors. And then at the very bottom is Asian minors. And disproportionate detention of kids of color is only the beginning. Aspects of our culture, our social structure and our history make the impact of the criminal justice system on black youth much more dangerous and deeper than the impact the system has on other kids. The criminal legal system does not just respond when black children commit criminal acts. As our guest tells us today, the system actually criminalizes 
black youth in a way that is not true of other groups of young people. And this dramatic impact cries out for a separate examination. We'll get that in this episode with our guest, Professor Kristen Henning, the author of a new book. Now, we're going to do this interview a little differently than usual. Recently, I had the wonderful opportunity to be in conversation with Miss Henning about her book for the Miami Book Fair. Here is that interview, which I'll begin by introducing first myself and then Professor Henning. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. I'm David Harris. I am professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, and I'm also the host of the Criminal Injustice Podcast, which is available to you wherever you get podcasts and at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. I'm honored today to be in conversation with Kristen Henning about her new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, published by Pantheon. Kristen Henning is the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic at Georgetown University Law Center. From 1998 to 2001, she was the lead attorney of the Juvenile Justice Unit at the Public Defender Service of the District of Columbia, long regarded as the best public defender's office in the United States. She's the winner of numerous awards and accolades, and with this book, she gives us one of the best and most relatable examinations of not just the juvenile justice system, but how the system as a whole particularly disadvantages and harms young black people. Kristen Henning, it's a great privilege to be with you today for this conversation about your terrific new book. Thank you so much, David. I'm happy to be in conversation with you too. Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, you have uh, uh, struck a real nerve with this book, and I think that's because the national conversation has really centered on the harms that uh, the, the criminal justice system, if we want to call it a system, does to people of color. But your particular focus is on black youth. Why don't you spin out the core idea of the book to us right here, right at the top? Yeah, I mean, basically, David, this this book really captures um, for all of us the the idea that while white children are allowed to enjoy the privileges of adolescence, right, to include physical safety, public affirmation, adventure, experimentation, um, and extended periods of academic and social freedom, black youth are are criminalized in so many ways. They're suspended, expelled, stopped frisked, arrested, um, and, and just criminalized for just being kids. And so I really explore this idea, the criminalization of Black children in our country. And I think that the criminalization spins out in at least three broad ways. Um, one is the criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors, the criminalization of things that you did, that I did, that many of us did when we were kids and we came out just fine. It also, I, I think about criminalization as the hyper surveillance, right? 
and the intense and aggressive policing in many black and brown communities. And then I think about criminalization and really the dehumanization of black children in the court system um, that you were talking about in the criminal and juvenile legal system, such that when children do make mistakes, right, they do uh, engage in criminal behavior, that we treat them without empathy, without empathy, without grace, without forgiveness. And so that's really what this book does. Yeah. And I think it's so important that that, that particular point you just made about dehumanization, mm-hmm. how that pervades so much of this. And one thing your book really does well is it humanizes the mm-hmm. consequences of all of this. I was particularly struck over and over by the stories that you told along the way. And maybe we should start by talking about one of those particular stories, I, I, the story of Eric right at the beginning yeah. of your book. Why don't you talk about that? Absolutely. And let me just say, I I really want to appreciate your comment about the importance of the stories, because I really wanted this to be a a book that was accessible to everyone. And And that that it is. Oh, well, great. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, And, you know, I wanted it to be a book where you could read those stories and see yourself in them or see your children in them. And I think Eric is a perfect example of that. What happened to him? Yeah. So Eric is this, uh, is a 13 year old boy um, who was a, a, a client of mine. I'm calling him Eric uh, for purposes of the book. And he was a 13 year old who on a Saturday night was watching a movie in which someone made a Molotov cocktail. And he said, wow, that is cool. I really want to make something that looks like that. So he went into his kitchen he grabbed a glass bottle and he started pouring liquids in it. Um, anything he could find, pine saw, um, bleach, you know, things that you and I know are not going to be flammable. He also takes for his wick, he takes a piece of toilet paper and he sticks it inside the bottle and lets it hang out and then puts the cap on. Again, you and I know this would never catch on fire before, you know, it would burn out or, or I should say it would burn out before it even reached the cap. Um, And so he then puts it in his book bag. Again, it's a Saturday night. He completely forgets about it. His mother drives him to school on Monday morning. He puts his book through the metal detector and a school resource officer says, hey, what is that? To which he immediately replies, oh, that's nothing. You can throw it away. He grabs his book bag and he goes on to class. The next thing you know, police arrive at the school, the fire department arrives at the school, they take him out, arrest him in front of his classmates, and that begins for him a nine-month ordeal in the criminal legal system while we represented him and litigated every single issue. You had expert witnesses to testify to prove that this liquid, there was no way that it was going to be flammable. And here's the kicker of the story. So several months later, several months after I began representing uh, Eric, I was at a conference in New Haven and a, a white woman came up to me after I did my presentation and I was sharing that story as a part of the presentation. And she said to me, my son did the same thing. And I asked her, so what happened to your son? Um, And she said, they put him in advanced science classes. And so just, isn't that the craziest thing? It's just, it was the, the, really one of the defining moments in my career um, about how incredibly differently we treat black children and white children. It's such a, an impactful story for Mm -hmm. us because the, the contrast 
couldn't be clearer. I mean, here you have a 13-year-old kid doing what 13-year-old kids do. They're curious about something, and the more curious they are, the more they want to learn, the more they try to imitate what's in the world around them uh, when they see something cool. And that's what Eric does, and his outcome is worlds apart from the outcome of the child of the white mother. And it just kind of says it all. Uh, but you know what was what was great about this book, uh, as I read it, was you don't just rely on stories. I think stories mm -hmm. are tremendously important for any kind of a writer because they communicate and they connect. But you're very, very much about the science here, too. What does science tell us about the brains, the attitudes, the way that kids are that you thought was important? Absolutely. I learned so much from writing this book. And one of the things that those of us who have really been studying um, or working with young people and particularly young people in the legal system is learning to understand the adolescent, <clears throat> excuse me, the adolescent brain and adolescent psychology. And what we learn is that the adolescent brain and the, the, the sort of the psychosocial features of adolescence really develop along the same fundamental trajectory, regardless of race and class. Yes, context matters, but all of the funda fundamental features of adolescence are the same. And so think about what we know about adolescence. If I ask the audience, you could tell me they're impulsive, right? They're sensation seekers. Oh my they're, gosh. Yes. yes. <laughs> they're emotional. They're um, fairness fanatics. They take risks. They challenge authority. They don't think ahead to the consequences, right? They talk back. So they do what adolescents do. And so what the research shows is they're, when you control for, right? When you hold constant race, um, uh, uh, socioeconomic class, um, you find that young people look the same. And guess what? They've done these studies internationally. And so that teenagers act like teenagers all over the world. It's not just an American concept. So I thought that that science was really critical uh, uh, to, to helping paint the picture because you're exactly right. The stories only go so far. People need that. They need the data and they need the empirical research. Um, and I'll just, I'll throw in here that one other major area of, of research, and there's there's a lot of it, but there's, um, and again, hopefully told in plain language, it's accessible to everyone, but it is the trauma. There's a great deal of research on the trauma that Black youth experience when they are in contact with the police. And so there's just, a, it really, when we think about policing youth, we have to understand this broader picture um, of the impact of policing on adolescent development. Absolutely. And, and you don't stop there. Uh, you go on to talk some about the science of the perception of mm -hmm. Black people. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like you to touch on that a little bit, because I think a lot of people don't know what science has told us about how Black people are perceived by others. Yeah, so it's the whole cognitive science of bias, right? Of racial bias. And so we know we hear it, um, but it's really, really, I mean, you're absolutely right, the word impactful 
Um, you know, we all have cognitive shortcuts. You know, we rely on cognitive shortcuts to get us through the day. And so as a result, we categorize people according to stereotypes and assumptions and fears. And that's what's really critical. Um, the fears that we have about Black children have become so deeply embedded in our society that we walk through the park and we see a Black child and we're afraid. Um, and what's particularly, so the, so the research on um, implicit bias and, and cognitive shortcuts around race and criminality um, have a unique impact on perceptions of Black children. And so there's a whole uh, a, a body or a, a research on the adultification of Black children. And so in that research, um, the, the scholars have found that civilians, police officers, really all of us look at Black children and we see them as older and significantly older. One study found that um, among civilian participants, they saw, they saw Black youth as 4.53 years older than they really were. Among police officer um, uh, civilians, they saw a, a police officer participants, excuse me, in that study, they also saw black youth as 4.5 um, or more years older than they actually are. And you know, David, if we think about what kind of impact that has, think about Tamir Rice. Oh Folks yes. Remember, right? Tamir Rice, mm -hmm. um, you know, 12 year old boy killed uh, by the police in Cleveland, Ohio, after there had been a report of a black male with a gun, probably fake. The radio run said that it was probably fake. And the officers rode up and less than three seconds, he was shot. And the officers in interviews talked about how he looked much older than he actually was. And so this research backs that up. It demonstrates that cognitive, uh, that phenomena, the science of, of bias and how they aged him so much older. And imagine a 16 year old child being perceived as a 20 year old adult, adult right? So 12-year-old Tamir perceived as 16 or 17, and a 16-year-old perceived as an actual adult. Really is profound. Absolutely. And the same studies also show people perceiving uh, Black children as larger, yes. more threatening, more yes. muscular, all those things coming oh, together. Uh, and you can really see in the case of Tamir Rice how they all tied into that tragedy. You, you do a great job of pointing to certain really important adolescent markers and describing how they are different yeah. for black youth. You talk about, <laughs> let's take them one at a time. You talk about play and how that's different for black kids. Yeah. I mean, that's a, really the heart of this book in a lot of ways is the deprivation of just adolescent play. So think about what the hallmarks of adolescence are, right? So it is the clothes that, you know, we wore as kids. It's the mm -hmm. music that we listen to. Yep. It's the friends that we hang out with. It's the parties that we go to. It's texting today. It's texting our friends on cell phone. It's how we style our hair. It is everything. It's, it's fundamental and important and valuable uh, to, to adolescents. But that, those basic features and um, fun play of adolescence uh, is deprived to many Black children. So we could just take any one of those. Let's think about um, the clothes uh, that children wear. Sagging pants, right, has been a phenomenon for, for young uh, Black youth. 
And that is there are statutes on the books in cities, city ordinances that outlaw sagging pants, which means that children can be stopped and arrested by the police. And we know how quickly those incidents uh, yeah, things can go wrong in a hurry. Right. And mm -hmm. what's so important, right? It's not, you know, we're all people are offended and they don't want, you know, to see kids underwear. But contrast that to Justin Bieber. Right. He is one of the most famous saggers of all time. Right. Sagger, uh, and yes. we think it's exactly we think of that as a fashion, you know, statement and icon. Um, so that's just, you know, one example. We think about music, the music that children listen to. And so white children listen to country, heavy metal, rock music, which is full of misogynistic and violent lyrics like any other, you know, sort of major genre of music. Um, but yet that's, you know, the children get to listen to that without any consequence. Black children listen to rap music and it becomes, you know, a marker of the most dangerous, you know, child alive. And so it's really problematic the ways in which we criminalize those things that are so important to what it means to be a teenager. So those are just two examples. Right, absolutely. And they don't just lead to us looking at black children differently. They can have, as you say, real consequences, even arrest and encounters with the police. One of those other markers of adolescence is, of course, how we begin to come to grips with who we are as sexual beings, mm -hmm. our sexuality. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's so it's such an important thing with uh, with adolescence, and even that is different for black kids. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I devote a considerable section to you know. Uh, uh, one of the, the chapters on this notion of sexuality, because that is so important. You know, teens experiment with sex, right? You know, within race, across race. And, you know, uh, uh, white boys are taught boys will be boys. And we've seen that. I don't even have to give you examples. We've seen oh that on the political uh, stage, right? Yes. That, you know, we talk about adults and we're willing to, you know, forgive um, you know, boys will be boys. This is what they do. And it's very confusing for a black child, right? A black boy who absolutely doesn't have that uh, uh, freedom, right? Can be sexualized um, or, or called and arrested for rape um, and harassment at such an early, um, early age. And some of you will remember the young uh, boy, nine years old, Jeremiah Harvey, right? Mm -hmm from Brooklyn, New York, who walked into a convenience store and literally unbeknownst to him, accidentally brushed his book bag across the rear end of a woman. Um, and she immediately turns around and assumes, right? It's that bias kicked in. The assumption was A, that he did it on purpose, B, that it wasn't his book bag, but that it was his hand, and three, that it was for his sexual gratification. And I got to tell you that, you know, had she turned around and seen a, a white boy or, you know, a child, she would have seen him as a child and would never have assumed something so uh, pernicious um, as a nine-year-old being sexual. Nine years old. Yeah, that really struck me, I got to say. Absolutely. It's so painful. And then listening to interviews of his mother, you know, talk about that and how traumatized she was for him and how traumatized he was, seeing interviews of him crying, 
hysterically on television as he recounts that story. And as he uh, recounts learning about Emmett Till, who was lynched for allegedly whistling at a white woman. Right? All of which turned out to be false, we found exactly. out years later. Not yes. that it ever would have justified what happened to Emmett right. Till, but it was all a lie. Absolutely. So it's such an incredible through line from from, you know, the right. lynching era. Right. Because that that sexualized narrative of black black youth was used quite intentionally to uh, to justify. Right. The lynching of Emmett Till and other young black boys and men. And then that narrative lives on even beyond that intentionality back to the science. Right. Of the cognitive fears yes. that we have about black children. And so for this woman, you know, in, in New York, um, even if it wasn't intentional, even if it wasn't intentionally or consciously about race, it absolutely was about race. She turns around and sees a black boy walking past. It must have been an intentional touching. Absolutely. And you don't limit your discussion. I was uh, interested to see to just black boys. There's a whole side of this for black girls as well. Absolutely. And thank you for highlighting that, David, because I really made an intentional choice that I wanted the we can't just talk about black boys. The criminalization of black youth is definitely both, um, you know, uh, male, female, and, you know, transgender, you know, a binary youth, black youth. And so I wanted to weave that out through the entire book. And so absolutely there are pieces, of course, that require a special telling about black girls. And one of those is the clothes that they wear, the ways in which, you know, children dress or black girls dressed is perceived to be sexualized, right? They are, um, you know, seen as uh, uh, the property of or the sexual uh, 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 sexually available um, to other people. And that's one aspect, right? So dress codes are uniquely enforced in schools against black girls, right? Um, that's one of the many ways that I talk about girls, but throughout every chapter, I weave in the way girls are, are treated um, just like black boys. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, another uh, key point I think you make in the book is uh, that um, black kids uh, have uh, experiences with police that are uniquely traumatic. Mm. Um, you know, we all know, I think at this point that experiences with police can go bad um, uh, in the moment and over nothing. Um, and uh, that black parents uh, take a special role in trying to safeguard their children from mm. this. Maybe you could talk some mm. about this. Absolutely. I mean, you know, black children really are taught about police almost from birth because black parents have no choice but to introduce them to the possibility that they might come in contact with the police and the risks that are associated with that. So just about every black parent has to give the talk, which is to say, whenever you see a police officer, do whatever they say, put your hands up, right? Stop, comply. Um, you know, do what the police tell you to do so that you can get home safe. And this is an important survival mechanism. But at the same time, it transfers, right, sort of this fear about police to 
to to children. And we really, you know, black parents really have no choice um, but to share these narratives. And then children enter schools, particularly black children in urban environments with that are heavily policed, they enter schools and they encounter police officers um, in schools. They uh, engage throughout the week in heavily policed neighborhoods with police officers that are present really in the neighborhood at all hours of the day, asking them where they're coming from, where they're going to lift your shirt so I can see your waistband. And so that's the narrative. That's the anecdote, the stories that I tell in the book. But then that's backed up by the research. <clears throat> that's backed up by the science showing that adolescents who live in neighborhoods that are heavily sur surveilled and that have frequent stops uh, and frisks by the police experience high rates of fear, anxiety, hopelessness, depression. Um, they become hypervigilant, always on guard, distrusting officers, and quite frankly, distrusting other people in authority, including teachers, right? And so the research shows it has an extraordinary impact on adolescent um, identity formation, meaning their self-esteem, their sense for who right. they can become, right? You know, mm -hmm. who, you, know, uh, you know, who they are and who they can become in society and whether it's even makes sense or is worth it to participate in mainstream society. Um, and I think one of the things that we don't know, um, that we often don't know about adolescents, but that, the, that our perceptions and our views about law and law enforcement become fixed in our minds during our teenage years, during our adolescent years, right? And so negative experiences with the police during adolescence are gonna have a ripple effect on how they engage with police later in life. Um, and so the research is really powerful to help us understand just how incredibly impactful um, policing is on, uh, on, on development. Absolutely. You know, when when you talk about the talk uh, that black parents have with their uh, with their children, particularly with black boys, uh, I, you know, it makes me think every time about when I was starting to drive. My father did talk to me about police. What he said was, if I find out you mouthed off to a police officer, you're going to have much bigger problem with me than you will with the police. So just don't do that. Um, but for black parents and their children, it's a whole different thing. And I think that your key word there was survival. It's about right. training the children so that they come home no matter what happens to them. And that just wasn't on the board for somebody like me. Uh, this is, it, it's another way uh, that um, I think black Americans grow up uh, in what Nicole Hannah Jones calls mm. a different country, yes, white people, yes, uh, and I really thank you for foregrounding that. Thank you. Yeah, uh, so true. Uh, you know, being a, you know, uh, you know, thinking about black parents and the fear their own right. So that was the trauma that we just talked about was the trauma that black children face. Think mm -hmm. about the trauma of you know that black parents face every time their child goes to a party. Right. Even yeah. when they do everything right, they still the children, you know, they give their children the instructions and come home. Don't use drugs. Don't drink. You know, you know, come home by curfew. And even when the kids do everything right, they still <clears throat> they still face the risk that they won't get home safe. Um, yeah. And it's not because of the party went awry, but because someone called the police about the music being too loud and the police show up and everything goes awry. So that fear is, is deep, deep.
and real and multi-generational. So oh, yes. I guess one of the things I'd like to talk about is uh, a, a real complete book like this will not stop with pointing out the problems or even with the terrific and impactful, important stories. It will then go on to say, here's what we should do. And I was uh, not surprised, but so glad to see how well your book does this. Maybe we should talk about a few of those things. And you know, when what you were saying a minute ago about the trauma of black kids uh, having to deal with police, one of the things that that really comes out in your section about uh, how we address this is to get police out of schools. How do police get into schools and 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 how do we get them out and and what do we do instead? Yeah, great question about schools. I learned, this is another section where I learned so much in writing this book. You know, I bought into, like so many of us, I bought into the narrative that schools uh, introduced police officers um, after Columbine, the mass shooting at Columbine in 1999, because teachers and parents were afraid to send their school, their children to school um, because of the risk of a mass shooting. But when I dug deeper and looked at some of the research that others had done, I realized that that narrative started, or not even the narrative, but the story, the evolution of police and schools started much, much earlier than that, right? It started in full effect with the, the fight against integration right of integration uh -huh. of the of the school system right um and so uh we've all seen those iconic pictures of the military and the police coming um under the guise little rock or little mm -hmm. rock right under the guise of facilitating uh inter integration you know uh, aiding and assisting the young black youth who were going into the school. But we know across the country that police officers ultimately became the barrier, right? Um, in many ways, or were used to block or to impede or to undermine the integration efforts. And so you begin to see the proliferation of school resource officers um, much earlier than, than Columbine, uh, very much in lockstep with the uh, the civil rights uh, movement. It was the backlash um, uh, uh, to that. And what's really important, which I was shocked by, that the National Association of School Resource Officers was founded in 1991. That is eight years prior to uh, the Columbine uh, shooting. And so we've got a, a, a police force in schools that is robust enough across the country to have its own national its own professional association yes. and conferences and trainings um, long uh -huh. before Columbine. So that's, I mean, so it's really important to understand that racialized history, right? Um, and so again, even if it was intentional in the civil rights era, those deeply embedded narratives that were used in the civil rights era, well, we have to have police because if you bring the black kids in, then our schools are gonna be dangerous, right? So that narrative, even if it's less intentional, less articulated, which it still is in many places, but even when it's not so explicit, it's still deeply embedded in our psyche. And so think about post Columbine, post 1999, post all of the mass school shootings, when the federal government gave more money to increase police in schools, where did those police officers get assigned? They got assigned in urban areas to schools with- Yeah, not random. They're not random at all. And not in the white suburban, uh, 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 suburban neighborhoods or schools where those mass shootings occurred. 
right? They were instead in black and brown schools. And so <clears throat> it's really important history. Uh, Fascinating history. So uh, if we get them out, people will ask, yes. what do we do instead to, uh, to assure school safety? Absolutely. We have got to relinquish this sort of, you know, uh, binary uh, uh, perspective in our country that the only way to achieve public safety is through law enforcement. The only way to achieve uh, school safety is by having school uh, police and school and heavy surveillance equipment. And the research tells us, evidence-based best practices tell us that we can improve school safety through um, a public health approach, right? That is attentive to the relationship development between young people and adults, that is racially just, that is restorative, meaning that teaches young people how to resolve their conflicts. So social emotional learning, uh, uh, even in the most dangerous schools, having violence interrupters, credible messengers that work with the young people who have conflict to help them resolve those. It's about increasing, having a trauma-informed response uh, or strategy for safety. It means having mental health providers, counselors, social workers available, career counselors. All of those seem, some of those seem unrelated to the safety concerns, but they're absolutely uh, intertwined. And so we we are just, we bought into the, the idea that we have to have police in schools. And let's be clear, you know, police-free schools is not as radical as it seems. It doesn't mean that we will never ever call a police to engage. It just means they don't need sure. to be physically present, right? On campus, such that teachers and school administrators rely on them by default, right? But that instead we replace those officers in the school system with other, uh, you know, uh, uh, behavior management specialists who don't show up in a weapon with a weapon at their waist and in a uniform. And we can still call police when there is a genuine, credible threat to the school. Police departments have police officers within immediate proximity to schools all across the country. And so police can get there. And the final thing I'll say about that is this myth that we can prevent mass shootings by having school resource officers on campus is justified by the, the history, the mass shootings. Many of those schools had school resource officers. The school resource officers have not been able to stop or prevent those um, uh, mass shootings from happening. So. Absolutely. So um, I can't help but notice, I don't know if anybody else will, but we have uh, two law professors here in conversation. So I'm compelled uh, just professionally to ask you about another set of recommendations you have. You say that the law should mm -hmm. change as well. And the law isn't always the most immediate thing to address a problem. I think we both know that, but right. there are laws in place that have a, a significant negative impact on particularly black youths. And so I'd like you to talk for just a minute about what it is you think in the legal system that should change that would improve the whole picture. Yeah, so I mean, I could, we could go in so many different directions with that because we could talk about statutory reform, which sure. would be in fact some of the police free schools movement, regulation of use of force on young people, prohibiting, you know, force, prohibiting canine dogs, pro prohibiting tasers, um, pro pro prohibiting certain violence 
um, hand or body maneuvers involving children, things of that nature, insisting upon developmentally appropriate policing in those rare circumstances when policing is required or, or is necessary um, for young people. But also since we're law professors, thinking about the interpretation of longstanding existing laws like the Fourth Amendment. So, so many people I imagine who are listening take it for granted that they can walk through their neighborhoods without undue intrusion by a police officers. And I just described earlier how black children live in neighborhoods where they're stopped constantly. Um, and so, you know, our interpretation of what it means to be free um, to walk through our neighborhoods needs to shift. So things uh, like the perceptions, you know, this ties into the perceptions that police officers have about black youth being dangerous. We need to rethink some of that, uh, uh, that some of that um, analysis. So in the Fourth Amendment, the law says that a police officer can stop a any of us, a young person or adult, if there is reasonable articulable suspicion yes, to believe, right? That they are involved in some criminal conduct. And so some of the variables or uh, factors that they consider would be flight from the police. Well, let me stop and ask you, you know, why is it that a black child might run from the police? right? Notwithstanding what their parents said, Black children are afraid of the police. So they might run because they're afraid of getting shot. And then police officers use that as a way to say, see, I told you you were suspicious or dangerous. So we've got to rethink some of that analysis, some of that. What does it mean to be um, uh, uh, to have reasonable, articulable suspicion? We rely on things like high crime neighborhood, um, nervousness, uh, mm -hmm. you know, fidgeting or, or furtive gestures. Uh, you're teaching my criminal procedure there class right there. <laughs> <laughs> so we rely on those things that are so deeply intertwined with racial bias. And, and I don't mean racial bias in some nefarious way. I just mm -hmm. mean that our biases lead us to believe that a black child um, who is nervous or fidgeting must be dangerous or must be suspicious. And instead, it's quite to the contrary. They're afraid, right? They're terrified. They're traumatized, all the things that we've been talking about. So there's some of that, right? Um, we could spend a whole day just talking about that, but that that's some of what how the law needs to shift. The statutes, the laws themselves need to shift, but also how we're interpreting and applying those laws has to shift. Yes. Well, there's we could obviously, as you say, we could go on for a long time about this. I cannot recommend strongly enough that people pick up this book. It's terrific. Um uh, Kristen Henning, it has been an absolute pleasure to discuss with you uh, your new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, published by Pantheon. Um, I hope lots of people will see this and read it. And I particularly hope that anybody who has any role in the criminal legal system, a judge, a lawyer, a lawmaker, will pay attention to what you've had to say um, Anybody who picks this up is going to learn a lot. I really thank you for writing the book uh, as a citizen 
And yeah. it's been a real pleasure to talk to you this morning. Excellent. Thank you so much, David. And I, you know, I'll just add to this. I mean, this book is truly, it's for teachers. It's for parents. Yes. It's for anybody, yes. you know, what Amen. I say, absolutely. You know what I say, it's for anybody who cares about the safety and well-being of children in our country and anybody who cares about race equity, because I, I, I argue that you can find yourself and the role that you have to play anywhere, um, you know, in, in this book. And so I really thank you, David. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you um, about this important topic. So thank you and for all of your research and writing and teaching um, on the, the criminal legal system and the impact of, of, of race and bias. So well, thank I, you. I assure you the honor was mine. It's been a pleasure. Take care of yourself. Thank you. You too. Take care. All right. That was my conversation with Professor Kristen Henning of Georgetown University Law Center, author of The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, published in 2021 by Pantheon. We have a link to the book up on our website. Stick around. We'll be right back with Lawyers Behaving Badly. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Branch. And this edition's lawyer, Judge Behaving Badly, from the Oklahoman and the ABA Journal News Online is Judge Tim Henderson of Oklahoma. Oh, I'm sorry, that would be former Judge Tim Henderson. It turns out that former Judge Henderson was not just your average judge. Your average judge might be, well, doing all those judging things, ruling on motions, presiding over trials, big and small, making legal determinations about the evidence during trials. No, Judge Henderson had a whole other bunch of things going on besides that. He seemed to have a predilection for having affairs with female prosecutors from the prosecutor's office that appeared regularly before him as a judge. This all tumbled out in the spring of 2021. It became public that Judge Henderson was engaged in this unusual activity back then because the prosecutor asked the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation to look into what was going on. And it came to light that Judge Henderson had had affairs with not one but at least two female prosecutors from that very office. In March of 2021, Judge Henderson was suspended from the bench, and by the next month, he decided to resign. And the allegations were awful and tawdry. Both of the female prosecutors said that their sexual activities with Henderson started after he had touched them inappropriately. Both women said they were shocked but went along with further inappropriate conduct by the judge for fear of damage to their careers if they did not. While Judge Henderson called the affairs consensual, at least one of the women had a very different characterization. She called it sexual abuse. That's a quote. 
and even former Judge Henderson described it in terms that really left little to the imagination in terms of how extensive this was. According to Henderson, who eventually was forced to fully disclose these details in court, the activity included sexual relations in judicial chambers, in the home of one of the prosecutors, and in hotel rooms. Henderson helpfully added that the hotel rooms, quote, were paid for by the prosecutor, making himself out to be some pretty pampered and valuable male real estate. Yeah, I'll just bet. So, as bad as all this was, why are we talking about it now? I mean, this judge behaving badly is gone, right? What do we care? Well, we have to care. At least the people of Oklahoma have to care because what's left behind here is not just a stink trail of stained reputations and a ruined career. It has impacted criminal convictions from cases that were tried in front of former Judge Henderson. You see, if Judge Henderson were to be overseeing a trial in which his paramour or former paramour were the prosecutor, well, that might seem kind of unfair to the defendant, wouldn't it? And that is exactly what the courts in Oklahoma are now facing. At least one convicted murderer is now saying that his conviction should be thrown out because of former Judge Anderson's relationship with the prosecutor trying the case. Which, of course, all goes back to former Judge Henderson's inability to keep it zipped and just do his job. Well, as we work through the inevitable appeals and retrials and other mess, there is one consolation for the people of Oklahoma. Not only is Judge Henderson now former Judge Henderson, one can only hope that other judges have been watching and listening as he goes down in a plume of flame and utter embarrassment. And that, my friends, is another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Branch. And with it, that ends another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Music